Hey everybody, it's Ed. I want to thank three brand new podcast supporters, Tim Hamrich, Nate Pitts, and Aaron Sullivan. Tim, Nate, and Aaron all signed up to support the podcast through Patreon. So if you're interested in learning more about that, you can go to mountainandpray.com slash support. Thanks so much. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Kate Cavanaugh. Kate is an entrepreneur and regenerative agriculture advocate who co-owns and operates Western Daughters Butcher Shop in Denver, Colorado. Along with her partner, Josh Curtis, Kate sells fresh, local, grass-fed, and pasture-raised meats that are all raised and harvested within 150 miles of Denver. Although she's been featured by such notable publications as the New York Times and Forbes, Kate is most proud of the deep connections that she's formed with regenerative ranchers and farmers and the positive impact her business has had on the land. As you'll hear in our conversation, Kate is deeply committed to regenerative agriculture and specifically the role that ruminants play in the health of soil and grasslands in the American West and beyond. She's also a seasoned businesswoman who's paid her dues and suffered the bumps and bruises that come with any entrepreneurial endeavor. And it's her combination of passion, toughness, curiosity, and a willingness to think outside the box that has made Western Daughters such an inspiring success story. I had a great time chatting with Kate, and I learned a lot from our conversation. We started out by talking about the story of Western Daughters, how the business began, some of the challenges of running a brick-and-mortar store, and the specifics around how the business supports local agriculture. We talk about Kate's upbringing in Colorado and how she felt a deep connection to the land and the environment from a very early age. We talk about Kate's childhood commitment to vegetarianism and why she began eating meat again at age 20. We also chat about Kate and Josh's exciting recent purchase of a farm in upstate New York and how they plan to balance owning Western Daughters with farming their new land. We talk about food's role in mental health, and Kate graciously shares some of her daily practices that have helped her manage anxiety and depression. Kate's also a voracious reader, so there are tons of good books mentioned. Be sure to check out the episode notes for links to the books and more. Thanks again to Kate for taking the time to chat with me. I know you'll enjoy this episode. Maybe the first thing is just set the stage with your butcher shop, because I think you've, I mean, you're in the New York Times about yes. the butcher shop. So let's talk about that first. How, how did the butcher shop – first of all, what is the butcher shop? So Western Daughters Butcher Shop is a butcher shop here in Denver, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, and we focus on 100% grass-fed beef and lamb, pasture-raised pork and chicken, all coming from within 150 miles of the shop. Wow. Uh, everything is antibiotic, hormone-free, GMO-free. Um, and we only work with local farmers and ranchers and pass money directly back to them. So I think we're on average – 
about seven to eleven cents of every dollar that you spend at the grocery store goes back to a farmer or rancher. Uh-huh. It's fifty cents at Western Daughters. Oh wow! And so, how did you? get into that? I mean, what were you doing immediately before you started that business? So immediately before I started, I was flailing in college, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, And at the time, I I was really considering going into land management Mm -hmm. and was looking some at ecology and veterinary school and just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, And so have you always been interested in agriculture? Because we're going to talk more about this. But I mean, I think at the basis, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the basis of your business is a love of agriculture and yes. the land. Yes, absolutely. Um, really at the heart of Western Daughters is wanting to find better ways to support regenerative agriculture. So where did that come from? I mean, were you as a kid, were you always interested in ag? Was your family in ag? I know your family's yeah. got an interesting background. Um, um, so my family was not in ag at all. Uh-huh. I grew up in the suburbs of Denver. Okay. Um, my father was a petroleum engineer. Oh, really? My mother was his bookkeeper. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were very much city people. Yeah. Um, and I was super passionate. I, I had a had a nanny as a little kid that would take me out to farms and ranches in Nebraska, and I just loved it. Um, and then at the age of five, I, I made a very big proclamation that I wanted to become a vegetarian. At age um, five? At age where five. did that come? Do you remember where that <laughs> yeah. the seed was planted? Yeah, so I had seen the movie Babe, uh-huh. um, and I was a really <laughs> sensitive kid, and I just – I just really empathized with these animals' situation. Yeah. I just became really passionate about about animal welfare, and I'd save up my allowance to save turkeys every Thanksgiving. Um, really? Yeah, I was super passionate. And my parents, my parents let me do it. Um, and as I got into my teenage years, it became a little bit more about the environment. It uh-huh. became a little bit more about interest in seeing climate change happen and seeing how much industrial agriculture really contributes to that. So my, I guess my question, and this is more a reflection on me than anything, is when I was in high school, all I cared about was sports and, you know, the normal stuff that, that 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds care about. The last thing I was doing was learning about climate change. And that, like, <laughs> what, where did you – like, where did that – it's kind of like a, a, um, a seriousness, not, not in a bad way. Like, where did that come from? You know – I think it's interesting. I had a I had a tough childhood. My dad was a lot older, okay. uh, so my father was born in 1928, uh, oh, wow. right at the Depression, and grew up in Oklahoma during the Dust Bowl, mm. um, which is a fascinating and kind of lost period. It's a period in American history that we don't talk a lot about, and I think it's really important. So I kind of grew up with this idea and this seriousness. Um, also, grew up around chronic illness, and I just. I was a serious little kid yeah. um, and grew up into a serious teenager. And I was still I – was, I was going to punk rock shows and I was doing all kinds of, of fun stuff on the side. But climate change and looking at the environment was really something that I became quite passionate about. And so you go to college. Did you study land, ag type stuff in college? Or? I was lost in college. Yeah. Um, I studied a little bit of everything. I started college young. I started college at 16. Oh, wow. And I had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, uh-huh. I studied a lot of biology, a lot of anthropology, some physics, some English classes, a little bit of everything. I uh, ended up not quite finishing college. I, I don't have a degree, yeah. um, but I have enough for almost two degrees. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm a generalist. Sure. Well, and, and well, it's interesting how many people – I mean I think on this podcast, it's, almost, it's like 50-50 of the people who have either gotten this extensive training and they credit a lot of their success to the training and then the other half, they, they were generalist all along and they followed their passion and they – I mean, it, there's no there's no correlation. 
Oh, I totally agree. And I, I was reading actually a really interesting book lately called Range by David Epstein. I've seen that one, but I haven't read um, it. Fantastic. And it's about how, how generalists can triumph in a world of specialization. Um, and I was reading it more to just soothe my soul because I have a big chip on my shoulder about not having finished college. Yeah. Um, and it's just about how when we take this sort of holistic perspective, which I think is important when we're looking at everything from agriculture to health mm-hmm. um, to just – our daily lives. Sure. Take this bigger holistic perspective. We can really gain a lot from it. Yeah. I think just in general, I think the educate the, the people who are winning in education now are the banks <laughs> who, <laughs> yeah, are, who are I servicing can, these I loans. I completely agree with that. I mean, yeah. I got all these fancy degrees and so I can draw you a supply and demand curve. What's that going <laughs> to do for you? Uh, <laughs> could do a lot. <laughs> could do a lot. Um, so you're in, in college, transition out of college and then – when did it – were you still a vegetarian all through college? No. So I ended my run with vegetarianism at the age of 20. OK. What um, led to that? Was there a specific moment, like the babe moment, or was it more of a learning process? It's kind of a collection of moments. Okay. Um, number one, I was struggling a lot with anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. And through a lot of research, I had seen that a lot of people felt better when they started eating meat. Yeah. Um, and indeed, we get a lot of nutrients from meat that we really can't get anywhere else. Sure. Um, and so that was kind of the impetus for it. Not the time um, I had started dating my now life and business partner. Um, and we were really getting into cooking mm-hmm. and just becoming really passionate about cooking. And so I decided I wanted to start eating meat again. Um, and as I had looked at maybe going into land management or ecology uh, for grad school that I never made it to. Uh, I really wanted to start eating meat that supported regenerative agriculture and kind of done some research and found that one of the best ways to restore grasslands and to restore soil and to really prevent topsoil erosion uh, was the movement, um, the managed movement of these ruminants on Mm -hmm. the grasslands. I was just fascinated by this. So I started going to farmers markets, started talking to farmers and ranchers and really just learning a little bit more about where food came from Mm -hmm. and started eating meat again. Were there, when you were in that process of learning that, like for me, the time that it really clicked, that I finally got it, was when I read Jim Howell's book, For the Love of Land. And I really do credit that book with just, you know, I had all this other information floating around in my head, but it kind of crystallized it all. Yeah. Um, Was there any books like that? I mean, any resources when you look back? There were later on. Yeah. Um, I think at that time, Wendell Berry Uh, was a huge motivation. Um, Aldo Leopold and just looking at that sort of early naturalism and and where that came from. But books wouldn't play a bigger part in this until until a little bit later. So when did – how did you go about starting the butcher shop? I mean because that is – I mean that's a (laughs) – That'd be a tough business for somebody you know my age, forty and forty-two, to to jump into, and you just think about all the different. The, I mean, it's so many moving parts. Yeah, absolutely. So how, how did that come about? Um, I think I, it came about in a lot of ways because I was naive enough not to know better. I thought, <laughs> right, right when I asked that, I was like, I bet I know what her answer is going to be. Um, you know, I. Knowing what I know now, I would go about it very differently. And at the time, I really just had stars in my eyes. Yeah, I I really just wanted to start this thing that. I mean, there were really no methods at the time of supporting regenerative agriculture. Mm-hmm. Like, like, how do you as a consumer support, you know, carbon sequestration and grasslands through the use of ruminants? Yeah. Um, and I think the best way to do that was I had this grand idea. What if food is a byproduct of conservation? Mm-hmm. And so what if what we eat, you know, is is helping to support 
the land to build topsoil, um, to help regenerate soil. Um, and I was just so passionate about it, and it felt like this was a great way to go about it. Um, and so my partner, who's a – Josh is a master carpenter. Mm-hmm. And so what he likes to say is that he used to put things together, and now he takes things apart. Interesting. Um, we went – we did an apprenticeship. We learned how to butcher, and then we bootstrapped opening up the shop here in Denver. Okay. Um, and there is just – we just started. And I think that, and you and I were talking earlier, I think that oftentimes we're really just winging it and figuring it out as we go along. And that's all that Josh and I were doing. I think that's a good lesson for people who are listening to this to to hear is that, I mean, that's been the common theme of everybody I've had on on this podcast. After the fact, when we're just talking, they're like, I have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) I mean, and and I think, you know, nobody does. Anybody who says they do or they're... They're very uh, confused. Yeah, I don't. I don't think they're looking at it hard enough. And I yeah. think that we're all just winging it and figuring it out as we go along. And I think as humans, we have a huge capacity to mm-hmm. be able to do that. And Definitely. so I think it's a, a beautiful thing. And then you look back and you're like, oh, I would have done that differently. And back, backing up just a minute, and this leads into something we were talking about before we started recording. Um, when you stopped being a vegetarian. Did any of your vegetarian friends get mad at you for doing that? Because we, we were – before we were recording, we were talking about how there's this tribalism with everything, but one of the things being food. And people think this is the only way to do it or this is the right way to do it and everybody yeah. else who does it is wrong. And it seems like there's a lot of that you know, between vegetarians and you know, the – I don't know what intermittent fasting people. Everybody thinks they got it right. Yeah, so I, I mean, how people. was that? Yeah, me too. And so I'm, I'm starting to get like really hungry. <laughs> um, you know, at the time, I didn't have a huge population of vegetarian friends, okay. and I think that our tribalism around food has really increased in the last decade with social media. Um, probably. With social media, and I think with just learning more about our food, right? I think we're we're about 15 years out from Michael Pollan's The Omnivore's Dilemma, mm-hmm. which I think was a re- pretty quintessential book and shifting the way the lot of people thought about eating and yep. supporting local agriculture. Um, and so at the time, I didn't have a lot of vegetarian friends, but we see a lot of that now. And I think that I think that food is so incredible because, incredible because it's such an intimate part of things, something yep. that we're putting in our body, you know, one to three times a day. Um, we have a really intimate connection to it. It's actually changing the structure of our cells. It's mm-hmm. informing our epigenetics. Um, and so it's it, intimate and it's personal. And I think it inspires a lot of fervent beliefs around it, mm-hmm. um, which I totally understand. And I have my own fervent beliefs. And I think what I've seen more now is following the New York Times article, there was quite a bit of lashback from the vegan community. Oh, really? Yeah. I got actual like physical snail mail. Did you really? Just telling people me angry? what a bad person I was. <laughs> I just don't get it. I mean, if I thought, I just feel like if I I can't think of anything that that I would be that passionate about other than my family. And even then, I wouldn't go about protecting them or laying down, you know, laying out my thoughts in in that kind of way. That just doesn't make any sense. No, and I think that – I think it's difficult because I think the amazing thing about all of these different factions of food and eating, whether you're on the carnivore diet or you're a vegan or you really want to support regenerative agriculture or you intermittent fast, is that we actually have a lot more in common than we we have in terms of differences. Yes. And so I think that there's a big aspect of wanting to try to build community and accepting that other people are going to have other views, other Mm -hmm. beliefs, um, have done different research than you. Yes. And that we can all come together in the common cause of just wanting this place to Mm -hmm. be better. So 
could you believe? I mean, when they, when the New York Times called you up and said they wanted to to come and visit and put you in there, I mean, what was that like? I mean, was that kind of surreal or was it exciting? I mean, then you know, there's obviously the flip side of it puts you in the the it puts you on the radar of people who may not agree with what, with what you're doing. I mean, how, how what was that like? I mean, that's a big deal. It was a it was a really wild experience. Um, I actually got to cook for Melissa Clark, who wrote the article. Yeah, I, I, I cooked her a whole there. lunch, uh-huh. um, which was uh, that. I mean, <laughs> that in a lot of ways, and trying to nail a perfect medium rare steak for the one of the food writers of the New York yeah. Times. <laughs> um, that was really nerve. She was very complimentary. She was, and I. To be honest with you, I did a very good job nice. with that steak. <laughs> Luck good was job. on my side. Good job. <laughs> um, you know, it was an interesting experience with any big media like that. You don't really get to control mm-hmm. what the story is about. And so this story was really about my transition to from vegetarian to being a butcher. When I think the story that I would have rather told is about what it means to support regenerative agriculture um, or to talk about food as a byproduct of conservation or to talk about how soil comes first in mm-hmm. this conversation. And so I think there was some difficulty in, in you know, you're, you're painted in a certain way that maybe isn't how you see yourself. And, and so I think that's difficult. Um, but at the same time, it, an incredible experience, uh, not only just to talk to Melissa Clark and to get to sort of rap chat about what food means with her, um, but to have a recipe featured in the New York Times and to be able to, and I really did get to afterwards, connect with so many people from all over the world. I've gotten to have conversations with people from France and Switzerland and China about what local food means to them. And I think that that connection point is, is priceless. Speaking of regenerative agriculture, can we talk about some of your suppliers and you know, how where where the meat comes from? I mean, do you, you said a hundred no more than one hundred fifty miles from yeah. Denver. How do you select the producers that you want to work with? I mean, how has yeah. that played out? Yeah, so this has played out. Really, I think this is about building relationships first. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of our farmers and ranchers are people that you know we've shared a dinner table with a lot over the years, um, and. It started with cold calling, and this was seven years ago, so it was about a year before we opened the shop. We started cold calling people, mm-hmm. uh, looking online at eatwild.org, trying to find grass-fed producers. And Josh and I got laughed off the phone really? a lot. Um, six, seven years ago, grass-fed beef wasn't very popular, much more popular now. Now we get phone calls. Really? Um, but people just thought, what a silly idea. Mm-hmm. You want to sell fresh grass-fed beef year-round. <laughs> in a butcher shop. And and maybe it was a silly idea, but through that, you know, the couple of people that would stay on the phone with us mm-hmm. and, and would go out there and sit and have a conversation. And I think two of our biggest producers, um, what, one is our uh, the man who raises hogs for us, okay. um, Matt Couts at Cottonwood Creek Farms. And at the time, we were looking for chicken, and we went out to his farm and ranch and um, came around, and he had, he had at the time three little boys. He now has four. Um, and pulled them around in a little red wagon. And at the end of kind of showing us his egg production, the boys were like, come see the pigs, come mm-hmm. see the pigs. We're like, okay, let's see the pigs. Um, and he goes into the back of his lot, and he has all of this this kosher root, all of this invasive um, green weed, and he calls for the pigs, and you can just see it move. It's like Jurassic Park. Really? And these pigs just, like, come out of this jungle of weeds. Um and Josh and I looked at Matt and we were like, 
would you ever want to raise more hogs? Uh-huh. And, you know, from here to now, I think he has about 150 hogs on the ground. Does he Right really? now at Cottonwood Creek. And where is that? Where is that from? Um, it's in Moreno, Colorado. So it's in, it's, it's northeast of here, about halfway to Holyoke, halfway to, okay. you know, halfway to Kansas. Very cool. Um, and it's this beautiful space and, you know, he's farrowing. Uh, so he's, uh, all the hogs are there from birth. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's farrowing without the use of gestation crates, and all the hogs are outside. He has these giant hoop houses that they go into during the winter to keep warm. Um, and that's just a relationship that we built over a day. You know, after he showed us the hogs, we stayed for lunch. Really? Stayed for dinner. Did you really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just having conversations and, and finding that connection point uh-huh. um, for us. And so – Everything became about that. And we actually – we gave Matt a startup loan. Did you really? Um, because I really think that this is important that we're helping to support each other within a food system. And so we gave Matt a startup loan to buy his beginning stock. Oh, wow. And then he just paid that off over two years. We just kind of worked that back. Was that based on uh, other – like do you, had you seen something like that happen like read about it or, or talked in your networks or was that just an idea y'all had and like, well, we could, we could loan the money or where, cause that seems innovative. I, I don't know. Maybe. I think it felt intuitive uh-huh. at the time. I think it felt like this idea that, that here's this, this farmer that's going to raise something to our standards. And, mm-hmm. and Josh and I definitely have very stringent standards for the meat that comes through our doors. Um, and he's going to put in the work and we're going to build this relationship and so why wouldn't we want to share what we had at the time? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that aspect of community, I mean, agriculture at its heart, right, is so much about culture. It is. is so much about community. And I think that, you know, since Earl Butts said, get big or get out, we've lost that sense mm-hmm. of community and neighborliness. And so I think we really wanted to foster that when we imagined what it would be like to maybe build a different alternative food system. That is really, really, really cool. I mean, that's like <laughs> it's really amazing that uh, that you you're doing all that, and you know, it's just you're just figuring it out as you go, and it's super innovative. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing. So you could we could talk for hours about this, but for people who may not have listened to like my interviews with Jim Howell or some some other people that are focused on ag, can you give kind of an overview of the idea behind regenerative agriculture because it's once you hear it, it makes perfect sense. But I remember, like I said, the first time I heard it, it was like a, a light switch flipped in my in my head. And I was like, oh, I get it now. So can you talk a little bit about why we need these animals grazing? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think I'm going to do as good of a job as Jim Howell could do. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best. Yeah. Um, so the idea behind regenerative agriculture is this idea that we want to work – sort of we want to co-create and work in concert with nature. So I think a lot of agriculture up until this point has been a lot about superimposing ourselves on nature and working outside of the guidelines that nature sort of sets. But when we go back to this sort of mimicry of the way that nature does that does it, which is this sort of perfect innate genius, um, that really is at the heart of regenerative agriculture. And it's about building healthy soil. And I mean really healthy soil, making sure that those microorganisms and earthworms and mycorrhizae and roots and water storage is happening within that soil environment. Um, And I think that it really starts there. And I was just looking at, we lose about 5,000 tons of topsoil per acre um, per year. 
at really? this point in time in agriculture, which represents up to 11% of our GDP that is being washed away because we haven't taken care of our soil in a way that it is rooted down into the earth. So the, the idea on that, just to make sure I understand it right, is in these big, massive industrial farms where they just flatten a field out, it's nothing but dirt. You can't see anything but dirt. When it rains, all that stuff just washed out. That's correct. Okay. And that's exactly what it is. And that difference between dirt and soil is that soil is alive, mm-hmm. right? It's teeming with life. There are more than 5 billion microorganisms in a single tablespoon of soil. Wow. Um, which I think is just mind-blowing, right? There are universes beneath our feet that we haven't even begun to understand because they resist being studied outside of the whole. Like mm-hmm. if you take a soil sample back to a lab, it loses all of that vitality. Interesting. Um, And so it's only in that space where it is with its community of soil. And so I think regenerative agriculture, to get back to your point, is really really about soil. And for us, we really wanted to look at the the grasslands um, and how regenerative agriculture applied to raising livestock. Um, and just just as kind of a brief history, so the United States used to be 40% grasslands, mm-hmm. which is massive. That's it's just huge. sort of when unimaginable. About, yeah. And at that time, they estimated that the grasslands had the power to sequester more carbon than the rainforest. Mm. So just this incredible carbon sink um, and just this incredible force of growth, but really only for perennial grasses, for and these native grasses. Just so I understand that better, and I should understand it, but I don't. When you think about that grasslands sequestering carbon more, is that because of the the huge root systems? I mean, is that yeah. is that where it's because you just think about it, it's such it's so small, but then it's probably what forty or fifty times its length below the ground. Yeah, absolutely. And okay. so, and you know, for those of you that are listening and can, if you can Google um, the Land Institute um, grass roots, you I'll put can a link see, to that. So you, you can see these beautiful, like super twenty. 30-foot-long roots Mm -hmm. with maybe, you know, foot and a half, two feet above the soil um, that are really working to both open up the soil and make room for all of those microorganisms, mycorrhizae, um, and and to create space for water to drip down into the water table and to really saturate that soil. Um, And then they eat carbon. Uh, which they put down inside the soil and sequester it. Got it. Um, and so just this incredible, really powerful organism, if you think about it that way, mm-hmm. the grasslands. And so westward expansion happened and the Homestead Act happened and we came through with a plow and we changed all of that. Yep. Um, and then in the 1930s, you see the Dust Bowl, which is the first instance of really the first symptom of, oh, Maybe we're not treating this land in a way that's helping to make it whole, to keep it healthy. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing massive dust storms as topsoil erosion just pushes all of that into the air. Um, and so the idea for us at Western Daughters was kind of like, how do we work back to this place of this really healthy beautiful grasslands? And one of the best ways to do that is to appropriately manage cattle or yeah. ruminants in a way that mimics the way that bison roamed the plains for millennia. Sure. Um, and that that really is a symbiotic relationship between ruminant and grasslands. Mm-hmm. They both need each other to yeah, survive. That was what really struck me in, in Jim's book was just the, the idea that these grasses have been around for so long and before humans were around, you know, there were these big ruminants and they evolved together and it's just yeah. it's symbiotic. And 
they need those grasses need to be grazed. Absolutely. And if you stop grazing them, they're not. They have to be grazed. They have to be trampled, and they have they to do. be uh, disturbed. Yeah. And you take cows off, it doesn't work. No, and that's when you begin to see desertification. Mm-hmm. So you begin to see um, a loss of diversity in the ecosystem. Those grasses don't thrive, mm-hmm. um, and they begin to die, and you start to see more uncovering of that topsoil. And the one thing that we always want in regenerative agriculture is for soil to be covered mm-hmm. because that is what holds it down, and oh, that sure. is what creates you know, that holistic system. Um, and so it, ruminants are essential to this system. And so I think there's kind of this idea that, oh, if we just, if we just take them off, then it would just go back to to being whatever it was if we took off ruminants or if we were able to replant some of these perennial grasses. Um, And it doesn't. Yeah. It really – one needs the other. And so we really wanted to key into that system. When you explain that to people, I mean, do they get it? Because it's (laughs) – I mean, it it makes perfect sense, but it seems like a lot lot of even really smart people – because I used to live in Boulder. I lived in Boulder for like seven or eight years. And I would get so frustrated with people, you know, they're trashing cows and saying it's, you know, we need to get cows off of these ranches and we we don't want any grazing. I'm like, you don't understand. That's like saying don't water the grass, like don't water a plant that needs water. Yeah, absolutely. They need to be grazed. And I don't, I mean, how do you explain it to somebody if they're not going to understand it that way? I think it becomes such a hard thing to explain because we're so disconnected both from agriculture and from nature. And so these aren't systems that we've really seen in place, Uh, whether it's, you know, we've never been to a cattle ranch Mm -hmm. or we've never been out where larger ruminants were roaming grasslands, um, which comprises the better part of the world. Um, And so I think that that disconnection makes it really hard to explain to people sometimes um, and that they just don't really understand where their food comes from. I think that's where a lot of us are. And I think that grocery stores have kind of propagated this idea that a steak is just kind of comes in this hermetically sealed package. And we don't think much about the amount of hands or land or what it took to get it from, Mm -hmm. from land to plate. Thinking about, you know, all the different aspects of your business and, yeah, building it up. Seven years, you said you've been going. Just over six years, Just but over we've six been years. like we've been working on it for working seven. on it for seven. Yeah. What what is was the biggest kind of unexpected challenge of it all? I mean, I'm sure there's a new one every day, and there's still <laughs> yeah. is. But is there is there one thing when you look back on it, and you're like, all right, I started that kind of in this. I was I was naive and I started it. What is there one big challenge that that you didn't expect? Hmm. One of the biggest things that we really wanted out of this was for Western Daughters to be a space in the middle of urban consumers that are eating food um, and rural uh, ranchers and farmers that are producing food and to really connect those two places from a place of storytelling. Um, And I think harkens back to what I just said is that we really wanted people to better understand where their food comes from. Because I think when you get when you get a little bit curious about it, it unlocks the door into a lot more curiosity. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think that Food can be such a wonderful vehicle for that curiosity. You know, you take a steak home, you cook it, and you say, oh, my gosh, this tastes different than anything I've ever experienced. I want to know more about why. Mm-hmm. And then they come back into the shop and kind of begin to talk to us about it. And we get this chance to share stories about regenerative agriculture, share stories about our farmers and ranchers. Um, 
and that was what we were so passionate about. But it's been it's been hard to tell those stories mm-hmm. and hard to pique people's curiosity. Sure. And so I think that that's been one of the challenges that we've been most interested in tackling. Um, the other thing that I think is – I'd be remiss if I didn't mention is that we talk a lot about environmental sustainability within the sort of sector of agriculture and food that I'm in. But we don't talk a lot about financial sustainability. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that one of the most important thing when you're looking at a, a butcher shop or a farmer or a rancher, oftentimes they're working on 5% or less on their margins. Sure. Um, and that is that is so small. People talk about the restaurant industry being a hard industry at 15 to 20% margins. We're talking about less than five. And so I think that one of the biggest challenges has been talking to people about why this costs more. And what that means just for you and your community and your environment. And in just over six years, Josh and I have given just shy – we just ran the numbers – just shy of $3.5 million back to farmers and ranchers in six years. That's a big chunk of money in in that business. Um, Yeah, I I do a lot of work with farmers down in the lower Arkansas Valley in Pueblo County where they grow like the Pueblo Chili. And, you know, that is – they're competing. Their biggest competitor for like, like for green onions, for example, is Mexico. Yeah. And you know what Mexico can pay for an entire crew of workers for one day is what my friends have to pay one worker. Yeah. Per day. Absolutely. And when you you know, and there's all the like I'm working on the water challenges, and we're doing there's you know development pressure, but that labor aspect is a whole different yeah different part of it. Yeah. People, you know, it's almost like the the odds are are stacked against them, these macroeconomic odds. They are stacked. And I think they were meant to be stacked, I mean, in a lot of ways. I think when Earl Butts said that, when he said, get bigger, big out, get out, what he was really trying to achieve at that time in history was he wanted to take um, America's income spent. So at the time, uh, income, about 50, 50% of income was being spent on food. Really? And he wanted to drop that by 20%. What is, do you know what it is now? Yeah. So it's about 11% now. That's crazy. Um, and that compares with about 30 to 50% in other parts of the world. And so I think we have to go back to that time pre-Earl Butts and get back to this idea of what it means to spend that on food. And I think that our global food economy has certainly made it interesting. I know that within the grass-fed beef industry, so about 4% of all beef sold in the U.S. is grass-fed. Less than 1% of that is produced domestically. Oh, really? Um, Which I think is just a a wild statistic, especially when we have the potential, this land that is 40% of the United States used to be exactly perfect for producing this. So why don't more ranchers do grass-fed, grass-finished? I think mostly because of the economic feasibility. Mm -hmm. Again, we get back to that idea of financial sustainability. And when you're talking about this, you have to hold them for longer. Um, so I think on average, conventional beef is usually slaughtered between 16 and 19 months. Um, with grass-fed beef, usually 24 to 28 months. I know we hold to about 28, 29 months. And so that means a lot more time on land. Um, and it means a lot more inputs in terms of time. Sure. And so, And the market has a ceiling on how much people will pay for that. And so your margins are slim yeah. on this product. And so I think that that is a barrier to entry. Definitely. It's so complicated. And it's like you said earlier, you know, you learn one thing and then it opens up all these other things that you don't know. Yeah. And I feel like yeah. in my, my, <laughs> my work with these farmers, I've learned so much with water, but 
my knowledge, if you looked at it on a relative basis, I know less yeah. <laughs> than I did because I yeah. realize how much I don't know now. I think it's kind of I think it's kind of the knowledge idea of John Mears, right? When you when you take and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this quote. Um, when you pull out one thing, you'll find that it's hitched to everything else yeah. in the universe. It's true. <laughs> I think with knowledge, and especially as you start to look at agriculture, because it's such a big integrated holistic system where every single part and species and bacteria and fungi plays a really integral integral role that you you take one thing and you just keep pulling it's uh, exciting i mean that's it, it it's, is. it's, it's my, the other day my four-year-old said i know everything and i said well that's really boring i said all those books over there i guess you don't need to read them like you just what are you gonna do for the rest of your life you know everything <laughs> I like not knowing stuff. <laughs> yeah, um, and I just uh, every day I learn more about what I don't know. Yeah, um, and I think that it, it's an exciting time to go out and to seek to seek knowledge, knowing that we'll only get to scratch the surface. All right, and so this is what I've been excited to talk to you about. Speaking <laughs> of new learning, new things. I just yesterday found out that you're going to be a landowner and you're going all in on your with your own farm. Yes. Talk yes. about that. So we are, um, and this is this is very new and not something I've gotten to talk about because it's been under wraps as we went through the the loan process and the appraisal process. Um, but my partner Josh and I uh, just bought a sixty five acre farm um, in upstate New York. That is great. And so, how long had that idea been brewing in your heads? Since we met 10 years ago, (laughs) I think that was one of the first things that we connected on was this idea that we wanted a little piece of land to call home, Mm -hmm. um, that we wanted to farm, that we wanted to be connected to nature, that we wanted to be land stewards really and truly. Um, And in a lot of ways, when we opened up Western Daughters, we really thought that that was going to open up doors uh, to eventually maybe ranching out here or owning a farm. Um, and it became clear about two and a half years ago that 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 wasn't going to happen in the way that we had imagined it might. Mm-hmm. Well, um, is, is that just because of is that because of land prices in, in the area where you live? I mean, it just because that was my experience when I was selling ranches is that very few people who were real really into agriculture were buying land. Yeah. It was always for a different use. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you see a lot of that. And it was definitely a part of it um, was that – and we were in general – I mean when we were looking at land, we looked kind of all over the U.S. um, And we were pretty solidly priced out of the West. It's Um, ridiculous. It is very, very expensive, um, especially when you're you're bootstrapping. Well, yeah. It just does not work as a business. I mean the the numbers do not work if you're trying to buy land on a per acre basis. No, it just – doesn't not unless you have substantial investment, um, and so that was a big part of it. Uh, was just that w- the area we couldn't afford, um, but another part of it was we just couldn't. We had opened up this beautiful butcher shop that we both love. And it is beautiful, by the way. Thank you. Like thank you. Your your other one of your many talents is the, is I don't know if you call it interior design or what, but it's it is a cool spot. It is, and I'm super proud. You know, Josh did all of the carpentry in there. He's, um, he's an artist. And I mean, that's le- legit. Thank you. Uh, we hung all the tile. We did the floors, so cool. um, uh, which was a really fantastic experience. And we really wanted people to feel comfortable because mm-hmm. um, the idea of a butcher shop is something that's a bit foreign yes. to people nowadays. Um, but there were a lot of things kind of standing in the way of the farm. We couldn't imagine how we could have both Western daughters and go off and, and start a farm. Couldn't imagine how we could get money for a farm because we hadn't made much money yeah. um, running Western daughters. <laughs> and so there were a lot of kind of – 
steps here. And it wasn't until two and a half years ago we were we were going for a walk. Um, I really like to walk. And we were having a conversation and we both admitted to each other that we weren't happy mm. doing what we were doing. And that started a big conversation about what that meant to search out joy. Interesting. So when you say you weren't happy with it, was it – is it burnout – boredom from having been doing it for so long or like what what was what specifically so it's a mix of things and i'll say this first um i don't think you ever know how you're going to respond to running a brick and mortar operation no i mean everybody um, i used to be in commercial real estate everybody wants to start a place everybody yeah. wants to start everybody you know i would get calls all day from people wanting to start restaurants or businesses and it was Absolutely. tough that was early that was before amazon owned the world right and so nowadays yeah Sorry, I interrupted. <laughs> no, no. And I think that's a great point. And I think there is this romantic quality to it. Um, and I was very romanced by the idea of it. And just as we got through it, I learned that as a person, my constitution, the way that I work, uh, is not compatible with a brick and mortar shop. Really? And I think also at the same time, we really wanted that connection piece to land. And we found that we were spending more and more time away from the shop with our farmers and ranchers working with them mm-hmm. and that that was really what fed us in a in a deeper sense i guess um and so we really decided that that was what we wanted was we wanted that connection with a piece of land we wanted to learn how to steward it into the next 100 years and and wanted to be connected with animals and our food sources that's that's wise i think because like like you said, I mean that is a brick and mortar business is tough. I, I mean, brick and mortar selling anything is tough, and then you mix it in with agriculture, and that's <laughs> tough with specialty. I mean, you know, you're in a very niche market, but you 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 had success, and so I think that. But the idea of realizing, all right, well, this is great, and we've beat the odds, and we've we've worked our asses off, and we've had the success, but we want to do something else. I yeah, mean, that, that's that takes guts. I think that Josh and I have talked a lot about this, and I really think that we don't often look at what we're doing, especially when you pour – as an entrepreneur, right? Like you pour your blood, sweat, and tears into this thing. And so there's this idea that it has to be permanent forever. Mm-hmm. But we evolve as people, and our wants and our dreams and what what sustains us shifts over time. Yep. Um, and just to, to be aware of that as we were, and I, I think it's important, I haven't mentioned this, we're not closing the shop. Yes. Um, and we're maintaining ownership of the shop. Our um, incredible and amazing GM is now an owner. Great. Um, and she is going to run day-to-day operations while Perfect. we continue to work a lot of the background stuff. Um, but that decision to be like, I love this place and I have built this and it means the world to me and I am ready for the next adventure. That's great. And so what's the plan for the farm? I mean, when you, when you think about it, uh, wh- where do you see it two, three years from now? I think that's a hard question right now. Um, for us, we really want to get there. We haven't spent like five hours on it. <laughs> um, it was a very, very – we had to make a very quick decision. Um, and so what we really want to do is get up there and sort of ask it what it needs. Mm-hmm. How do we – how do we look at what, what nature would have been doing? And I, this is a Wendell Berry thing. Um, how do you look at what nature was doing before anybody was here mm-hmm. um, and how you can best support it as it goes on? And so since we haven't spent enough time, we really want to get there and see what does this space need 
um, and what would what would work with nature in this space. And I know that I know that there's a lot of water, and so we think that we'll definitely raise some waterfowl. Um, oh, cool! And Josh also is very very passionate about geese and ducks, um, and so we we want to kind of play around with that. It has some pastures that need some management, and so we'll look at uh, rotating some ruminants through there. Um, it's a little bit smaller. I don't know if cattle are going to work, and if they don't, we'll move to something like goats. Yeah, having all that water is going to be a different deal. It's going to be a completely different experience. Uh, we have a trout stream and, and several ponds and then riparian rights, which are just coming from the West. The idea of if it's water on your property, you can use it is is so foreign. Um, and I think foreign. that I think that and being a fan of the podcast for a long time, uh, Heather Hansman yeah. um, and her work with water and kind of exposing. I read that book. I devoured that Wasn't it book. Good? It was amazing. It, it was, was incredible. really the perfect book to, to showcase all the, you know, give, give a good idea about water in the West yeah. without putting you to sleep. Like yeah. so many of those books do. It, it was, it was such a beautiful book. And I, since then have just been sort of endlessly researching water rights. I think it's a, a fascinating topic and something that's really important as we go f- forward. Yeah, well, that's you know that's what I do all day, forty hours a week at least. Water and it's it is complicated, but it's fascinating. Especially we're kind of like switching places because I'm I was from the East Coast and I'm out here, and you're from here going there, and I was just amazed by like, wait, what? You you can't own you don't own the water if it's on your property, and yeah. because of where I came from, and so thinking about leaving leaving the West. I mean, you've been here, and your family. If I if I read if I remember correctly from your website, you know, your was it your grandmother? Yeah. Came out here, um, got you know, got off from from Ireland. It's my great grandmother, yeah, yeah, and uh, headed out this way 125 yeah. years ago. So my great grandmother um, immigrated from Ireland with her husband and her five daughters. Wow, um, so tough. And they got to Pennsylvania, and he died just right when they got to Pennsylvania. And she packed these five girls up in a covered wagon at the turn of the century and headed west, which is something that I can't even to imagine. I can't even take my two girls to the grocery I got to the grocery <laughs> store the other day and it was complete chaos. I mean that is so tough. Yeah, five so girls tough. covered wagon. 120 heading west. And so what do you feel about taking off heading back that way? I mean it's super super exciting but I feel I feel so excited but I also feel this deep sense of being brokenhearted. Yeah. Um and I think I always I always saw myself being out here out West and it just, to be honest, we were just really priced out. Mm -hmm. Um, And I love this home. And I was, I was actually writing about it a little bit yesterday and I was thinking about the fact that we can have two homes, that I'm not leaving the West behind because I think there's been this sense in my heart that like, am I abandoning the West? Um, And I thought a lot about, I, I really like the idea of linking uh, sort of the Earth's microbiome, which is soil, to our microbiome inside of us. And, like, I have spent so much time eating, like, the bounty of the prairie and digging my hands in the soil, and it is a part of me, right? Like, I have I have inoculated and populated my microbiome um, with fungi and bacteria from this place. And, and I will always call it home. And I always want to be a part in advocating for regenerative agriculture and grasslands management, um, in a way that I think will only grow as we make this move back East. And so I am torn apart and so excited all at the same time. It is, I mean, that is very exciting. Like we were saying before we started recording, I mean, that is, 
it's it's um, a cliche, but you know, putting putting your money where your mouth is. I mean, I think a lot of people have these dreams of doing things like that, or they're passionate about food or agriculture and have these ideas. One day I want to do that, but I mean, you're doing it. Yeah, and I, I it's still kind of sinking in, and I know that this is going to be such a huge journey um, and and hard hard work. I, I know that I don't even I can't even begin to know what lies ahead, and I think I'm just excited for that experience, like all the difficulties, all the hardships, all the joys and the successes and the triumphs. Um, but really excited about that connection mm-hmm. uh, to walk out my back door and to really be connected to a space. Have you read a book called Animal Vegetable Miracle? Yeah, I have. Yeah, that, Barbara Kingsolver. I keep thinking about that. And I've only, my wife loves it. It's one of her favorite books, and I've I've read parts of it. But it, it kind of reminds me of what you're going to be doing because similar landscape, similar terrain. Yeah. Where is it exactly? Where is the, the – So farm? it's in Salem, New York. It's about three minutes from the Vermont border, and it sits in between the Adirondack Mountains of New York and the Green Mountains of Vermont Man, so in the Champlain um, watershed. That is really cool. So um, thinking about your process of doing this, if there's somebody listening who's like, well, that's a that's a dream of mine to do yeah. that. I mean, is there any advice you would have for somebody who's – I mean, whether it's the farming aspect that you're just getting into or even the entrepreneurial side of things. I mean, what, what's some advice you would offer to young people who are – or not even young people, people who want to make yeah. a change? I mean, I think that this is a really important time to be talking about this. Uh, I think the average age of the farmer in the United States is about 68. Mm. And millions of acres, and you could probably speak to this better, but millions of acres of farmland are going to turn over in the next 10, 20 years. Um, And we have a huge opportunity here to go home, in a sense, and to go back and to work with the land. And one of my favorite authors, Wes Jackson, talks a lot about homecoming and coming home to the land. And so I think that, first of all, it's possible. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was really catalyzed. Kate Havstad, who's been a guest on the show, um, came out and talked to us last summer and kind of opened up the possibility of alternative ways of getting to the farm. Um, Josh and I felt that we needed a traditional mortgage, which we didn't qualify for because we've been entrepreneurs and we haven't taken regular paychecks. Um, And she opened up the idea of loans through the USDA and agricultural mortgages and just a whole different world. And so I think that there's a lot of information out there. Um, The USDA has amazing loan programs. Um, We went through Ag America for our loan, um, and they work a little bit different with farmers and ranchers, though we're actually one of the smallest loans they've ever done. Oh, wow. Um, But that tells me that there is a willingness out there to support people in small loans. Um, Reaching out to local chapters of slow money is a great way Mm. to consider it and looking at investors. Um, You know, it's funny. I was talking about this. I don't know if you've watched The the Biggest Little Farm. You've seen this documentary? I bet people have told me to watch it. I bet a dozen times now, and I have not yet. I need to do it. So stunning. So beautiful. Um, This idea of regenerative agriculture, I think, is really – the picture of it is just perfect in this documentary. And you really get a sense of for what it means. But what I don't think they covered, and Josh and I did a little bit digging afterwards, is that it took – the piece of property that they bought was over $10 million. And so that really frustrated me because most of us don't have access Mm -hmm. to anything like that kind of capital. 
And so I think, again, that this is a part of community, that you have to reach out to your local community, local investment chapters, um, you know, smaller agricultural loans, or even the USDA. But I think that there are a lot of people that want new farmers, not necessarily young farmers, but but new farmers with a fresh idea about regenerative agriculture on the land. Yeah, and I think just to add a little bit of that in my experience, working with local and regional banks is key. I mean, these big banks like Wells Fargo, they don't give a shit. No, they and don't. I mean, if anything, they're they're mean. I mean, because I've, I've had to deal with them with conservation deals and nobody there is accountable. It's just this black hole of, of people all over the world, whereas these local banks – I mean, they are in the local community. It's like going back in time. And yeah. um, they want to see their community thrive and they want to open up opportunities. I was just emailing with a local banker this morning and um, it's how it should be. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, when they think of banks, they think of Bank of America. But that's that's not what we're talking about. No. I'm talking about small banks. And I think, again, we're talking about community. Yes, exactly. That's what it comes back to, the community aspect. I think it really does. And I think it's it's putting that back into agriculture. So thinking about just all your experiences having, you know, in business and now in agriculture, are there any heroes or mentors? And they could be people you know or people you've just read about. You mentioned Wendell Berry a few times um, that that you you consider heroes or mentors in either world. Yeah. um, You know, in terms of mentors, we've been lucky enough to get to work with some of our farmers and ranchers. Um, Clinton Mary Kay Buckner, who uh, raised beef and some hogs and and lamb for us. Uh, We've been working up at their farm and ranch almost once a week. Mm. Um, And they've just taught us everything they know and taught us how to deal with everything we all don't know. Um, And I just think that they're incredible human beings and and a lot of people that have been on this podcast Mm -hmm. and the Kate Havstads and Jillian Lukuskis of this world. Um, But on a a different note, Wes Jackson, who I don't know is going to be my big book because everybody's recommended such amazing books on this podcast, (laughs) but um, he wrote Consulting the Genius of the Place, um, which I think has been really sort of the sort of penultimate book for me mm-hmm. in thinking about this. And I was really lucky. I was I was co-teaching at CU Boulder um, an ecology class uh, a couple of years ago. And I got to go out to the Land Institute um, oh, really? where Wes Jackson is and, and meet him. And so the Land Institute, for those of you that don't know, um, the Land Institute is in Kansas and Wes Jackson works with uh, – he's creating a perennial cereal grain mm-hmm. um, so that we can have – food as a byproduct of conservation. Wow. I mean, it's really kind of the essential idea of this. And he is a good friend of Wendell Berry's, um, you know, a, a lover of Aldo Leopold. Yep. This kind of came out of that whole space. Um, he's retired now. He's about 85. But I got to meet him. So and I cool. just think that he's this incredible force. He wrote this book with this idea that, like, nature contains all this genius. And we just have to we just have to sit down and be still and quiet enough for a minute to see that framework mm-hmm. so that we can work within it. And so I got the amazing opportunity to sit down with him. And he's just one of my greatest heroes in this space. Isn't that cool when you meet somebody that you've admired for so long and they turn out to be great? Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's always a little bit it's of nervous, amazing. like, oh, God, this guy's not a jerk. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And it was also just one of those big fangirl moments. And I yeah. haven't had many of those in my life, but I had to, to study and keep myself, <laughs> calm myself down a little bit. I was so excited to meet him. That is really cool. I, I want to back up to one one question I had. Um, from earlier. 
So you said when you, you started eating meat, one of the reasons was because you had read it helps with anxiety, depression. Yeah. Did it help with that? It did. Really? Um, it did. It didn't. It didn't cure it, which I didn't expect it to. Yeah. Um, I struggle with in, both anxiety and depression, but I really think that we have this interesting idea that the health of the land and your and human health are inextricably linked. Mm -hmm. And I think we've seen as the health of land has declined, right, as we're losing 5,000 tons per acre of, of topsoil per year um, and that the soil health has really declined. We've also seen a big decline in human health, yes. um, especially since the mid-90s. And I think there are a lot of contributing factors to that that could be contained in a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, but I really think that the way that we treat the land um, can inform a lot of the ways that we treat our bodies and that that connection between those two, recognizing mm -hmm. that that microbiome is the same as the microbiome inside of me. Uh, is really important. And I think that looking at what we eat is a part of that. And I saw, I did see um, some of my depression and anxiety alleviate. And if you, if you don't want to talk about this, I can cut it. But um, are there any other things you do to kind of manage that? Because I know it can, yeah. I mean, it can be a lifelong deal to, to keep it in check. Um, yeah. Are there any like daily things you do that help? You mentioned writing. I don't know. Is that is that part of the process? Yeah. So I do a lot of, I, I mean, in terms of, let me just clarify, just in terms of my health and what I eat uh, or in terms of practices? Practices or both, both. Um, so there are a lot of things I do. Um, first thing is really just supporting my microbiome the best I can all the time. Um, I recently read, and I think this is just so wild, that you have about 50 trillion human cells and about 14 quadrillion bacterial and fungal cells in your body. So we are only just a fraction human, sure. right? And so feeding and caring for that microbiome is number one to me. And I think the best way to do that is to get out in nature mm -hmm. um, and to interact with nature. You know, go to a farm, go for a hike, go for a walk, get out there, get your hands dirty. I think that's one of the best things we can do for our bodies. Yep. Um, in terms of eating, I'm, I know you're an intermittent faster. I'm also an intermittent faster, and I've seen a lot of benefit um, for that just for, for mental clarity and for my body. It makes me feel more awake. It makes me feel more um, me focused. Me too. It's just a slight bit of tension that does wonders for yeah. me. It's amazing. I think it's amazing. And, I, you know, studies have shown that it has a really great effect on autophagy. Um, so on clearing out cells that aren't are no longer I've healthy in your body. Yep, I've read that. Um, and so I think that's really important. And so that's a big part of it. In terms of eating, you know, we eat a lot of local foods. Mm -hmm. I like to tell my body where it is in space and time. Um, eat a lot of meat, but I also eat a lot of vegetables. Um, and just cooking at home. I think cooking at home is one of the biggest things that people can do. And I'm so passionate about helping people find simple ways to cook at home. Like this should take 20, 30 minutes. Yep. Just get it done. Um, and Josh and I make two to three meals a day, every day at home. Um, you know, I write, I meditate. I what think kind of meditation do you do? I don't know. There are a lot of labels for these things. Yeah, that's the thing. Is that <laughs> It's kind of like a presumptuous question, but like, is it, is it focusing on your breath? Is it, uh, focus guided? on my breath and clearing my mind. I don't do guided meditation. Um, I like to do at least 15 minutes a day. Um, 15 minutes twice a day is what I try to land on, but I rarely make it happen. And I just sit down. 
Um, I have a little exercise I do at the beginning where I kind of notice everything that I hear, see, taste, smell, feel. Mm-hmm. And I spend about a minute doing that. And then for 14 minutes, I just try to clear my mind. And yeah. it is so hard. Um, and so every time I recognize that I'm thinking and that I've gone down a rabbit hole, I just come back to my breath yep. and carry on the process. And I consider my meditation successful if I did it. Yes, same. <laughs> Not on how, how clear my mind was while I was doing it. There's a, um, there is an app, a meditation app, which generally when I think of most of the problem and the reason I need to meditate is the phone. And so the idea of having a meditation app, I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. Right. But there's one that I've been using for a year now, Sam Harris, who wrote Waking Up, and it's his yeah. Waking Up app. Yeah, I think and Sam Harris is amazing. I'm telling you, I mean, I bet I've read 30 or 40 books about meditation, every every kind yeah, you can think of. me too. And this is hands down the best instruction I've ever received. I like and um, I can't recommend it enough. I do it yeah. every day. Yeah. Um, even. I still put the phone on airplane mode. Like I don't want it buzzing nope, or anything. Me neither. But it's um, for people who are interested in getting into it. And they do some like it's like a 30-day free trial. But uh, it's awesome. I think that's a great resource. And I think that it's a really – and it's shown. It has been scientifically proven to lower um, anxiety and, and stress hormones in your body. And so I think that developing some sort of practice like that can be really crucial to mental health. Um, and I think it's really important to talk about that. So I think a lot of us a lot of us suffer and have a tough time. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think that – I do think that diet plays – an integral role. Um, 95% of your serotonin, uh, which is a neurotransmitter, one of the neurotransmitters that's responsible for for feelings of happiness, um, is made inside your gut, hmm. um, which is just wild. So it's not even made in your brain. Um, that's crazy. I didn't know that. And so the more that, again, like to come back to that idea that the more that you can take care of your microbiome, better off that, that gut-brain connection is. Sure. Yeah, I- I think food is is I mean at least for me I mean there's a direct correlation between if I eat if I eat sugar instant yeah. bad mood yeah. well 20 minutes later bad mood that yeah. will last for hours Absolutely and I think that's something we recognize in kids right like we recognize like you give kids a candy bar and all of a sudden they're just zooming off the walls having a meltdown all of this stuff and I think as we we become adults and we have a little bit more autonomy over our emotions sometimes um we don't recognize that as mm-hmm. much in ourselves and I know I've been mostly sugar-free for about 4 years Yeah and it's made a really big difference for me so did um cutting out caffeine. I, Did it really? I'm, I have such high anxiety and, and caffeine is an anxiolytic and cutting it out made a really big difference. We're staring at my 40 <laughs> ounce thing of coffee. Um, but it's, no, I, I'm with you. And I mean, I think in some ways my violent reaction to sugar is a, it's a good thing that, that, because I just can't eat it. Yeah. Like, and I don't have to, it's like with booze, like 10 years ago, I would get, I'd feel so bad after drinking. Yeah. It's like, I'm done. I'm not done. drinking anymore. I yeah. can't. I can't. Yeah. I'm allergic feel to good. it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and so it's, it's kind of nice versus having some kind of reaction. I could, I could, uh, kind of go back and forth with myself and say, oh, I don't know, I'll, but I just can't, I can't eat yeah. sugar. And I think that, I think sometimes when we quiet down and listen to our bodies, right, it's just like nature, Correct. right? All of those answers are there. We're just not asking. That's exactly questions. right. Because once, yeah, once I've, when I, you know, get my diet dialed in and I'm doing like I'm supposed to do, I just feel so much better. 
And yeah. it's like if you just pay attention to what makes you feel good and what makes you feel bad, that's kind of all you need. But it's hard to zoom It's hard. Out. It's hard because we, we're so stimulated and it is hard to just kind of sit down and, and – connect in. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a holistic, I'm finishing up my certification in holistic nutrition on the oh, side cool. because I really want to bridge the gap between mind, body, and soil. Mm. I feel like these three things all kind of belong together um, and that the greater connection we have between them, the better off we're going to be. I just got a book, uh, Nicole Masters is her name, and it's called For the Love of Soil. Mm. Just came out. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, and I ha- I'm gonna meet. I'm gonna interview her in May at the GrassFed Exchange, um, and so I got. I'm gonna be learning a lot about soil as I read that book. But um, you, you mentioned uh, you mentioned one big book. Are there any other books that have been kind of big, big time influential? I mean, that that was obviously the big one. Yeah, Consulting of the Genius of the Places is kind of my big one. Um, I think in terms of food, the Third Plate is a book that. I find really fascinating. I have some issues with it. Um, I think that it comes from a very bucolic idea Mm -hmm. of farming and ranching um, in a way that I don't think is realistic for a lot of people. But it really addresses a lot of the history of the West and how that changed food production. Mm. And I and it's a beautiful book. Like the story, Dan Barber just weaves really beautiful stories um, in it. I just like to take it with a grain of, sure. of, it's a little bit too bucolic for my tastes. Got it, got it. Any, you mentioned the, the what is it called, the Biggest Little Farm? Is that the Yeah, movie? The Biggest Little Farm. Any um, other documentary. documentaries that you've enjoyed? Um, yeah, Fantastic Fungi, um, which was Paul Stamets, who's sort of oh, the yeah, leading no, mycologist um, in the United States, uh, is incredible and worth seeking out. Um, it's not available for streaming yet, but I think that uh, as we as we talk more and more about agriculture, I think that our understanding of, of fungi are going to p- play a, a bigger part in that system. Um, he was just on Joe Rogan's podcast recently. Yes. And then, yeah, I think he's, he's been, been on, on Tim, Tim Ferriss, Ferriss too. Yeah. yeah and – I haven't listened to all of those, but I remember – I mean I clearly remember because he's a – I mean that is an interesting topic. That's a yeah. whole, whole other podcast. It is a fascinating topic. Um, you know, I think Michael Pollan is a great resource uh, at times and I think the botany of desire and just kind of better understanding plants is That's a great one. That's the one I haven't read. I haven't read that yet. I think it's worth a read. Okay. Um, and then – Podcast-wise, I just I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I think that Zach Bush. Have you listened to anything that Zach Bush has done? No, but he's going to be at a conference that I'm going to be at. I would I seek him out. Okay. Um, I think that he is incredible. He's really looking at regenerative agriculture and human health and that intersection. Oh, cool. Um, and I think that he's a really important player in this and somebody that I really look up to. He's a okay. hero in this space. Okay. Well, that's good to know because I saw his name on the on the list. Um, when you, this is a hard question, but when you think about the West and your time here, I mean, everywhere from the mountains out on the to the Eastern Plains in Colorado, is there one spot that's your favorite? You don't have to give away any secrets. <laughs> um, there is a, a beautiful trail that I. There are so many. This is such a hard question. Um, I don't have an answer. Two things. I. I there's a beautiful trail that um, my partner and I forage for mushrooms. Um, mm. We forage for uh, hawkwing and porcini and chanterelles. Um, but there's one trail out here that we've really loved um, that kind of wanders through a, a bit of forest and a little bit above tree line and has some beautiful lakes. And that is just really near and dear to my heart that we've spent a lot of time on. 
Um, and then I, I have to mention, when I went out to the Land Institute, I had the incredible opportunity to stand on a plot of prairie that had never been plowed. Oh, wow. Never been touched. Um, and so it was intact as it had ever been. Wow. Um, and I think that that was one of the most life-changing experiences I had ever had, just to feel that beneath my feet. Very cool. Um, when you think about all the time you spent outdoors, is there one um, experience that comes to mind as being like the most powerful experience? And it could be scary, funny, just memorable. That was it. It was standing on that prairie. That piece, yeah. Like it was feeling this – it was – it was so cushioned, like it was so dense underneath my feet. And I could just feel like how alive that space was and just sort of decay and regeneration and rebirth. And just it, it was the most moving experience I think I've had. How did they – I mean I guess that was on a, on a private ranch. I mean how did that come to no, be? No, so it's on a hill. It's Is on it a really? kind of sharp hill. And so it just wasn't – It was never plowed. It was, it was just use, never plowed. Useless land. It was useless court. land. yeah. yeah. Um, and so it had never been touched, and then it ended up coming under uh, the Land Institute's purview, though I know there are a couple of other spaces of untouched prairie. There's the Kanza Prairie um, in Kansas, and, and I'm sure there are others out there. Um, but it was just so unlike anything I had ever experienced. Mm-hmm. What, bene- what was beneath my feet wasn't hard or firm. I mean, it was, it was soft. Interesting. Um, and, and lush. Uh, you don't think about that when you think about the land out this way. No, you, know, you don't. Not out west. Hard rocks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you think about this firmness. Lush is something you'd never use to describe it. And I don't mean lush in like a green, verdant way, but you could just, you could just feel it. A lot of life down there. Yeah. When you think about the best, all the advice you've received, you've had all these great people enter your life um, to you know, offer advice and help you out. Is there is there any piece that sticks out as the best advice you've ever received? I don't think anybody gave me the advice to to search out what makes me happy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's advice I wish I had received. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't mean happiness in the way that that everything's all all okay That's all what the I was time. Ask. Yeah, like it, not this idea of of sort of. <sighs> unfettered constant happiness but to seek out what feeds you um and what really motivates you and sustains you as a human um i wish that i had received that advice advice because i think i've i've spent a lot of years kind of wandering in places that i thought i should go or uh thought might make more money or but ultimately i think that when we we seek those those spaces that bring us joy um, uh, that we are better off. Yeah, and I think you mentioned this earlier when you're talking about the the new farm and that you're excited for the ups and the downs. Yeah, because I mean I think that's what makes it a a rich experience. If it doesn't have those downs, yeah, yeah that pain like that is how that's what allows us to know what joy feels like. Yeah, and to really experience that full spectrum of human emotion. And so I I I know that agriculture especially is full of a lot of heartbreak, a mm. lot of difficulty. And and I anticipate that as much as I can. I know that there's only so much I can anticipate, or at least I'm trying. I'm trying to learn that. Sure. sure. <laughs> um, but to just let that wash over me, um, and and to just seek that this is something that makes me happy, um, more often than not, or in a deeper way. Deeper way. In yeah. a deeper it's way, really. Meaning. There's yeah. meaning to it. Um, so. You know, you've you've listened to the podcast, and the people who listen to this, they're from all walks of life. I mean, some 
in different countries, but they all love the West for one reason or another. And do you have any kind of words of wisdom or something you would like to ask those people to do? I mean, you you meant your word one word of wisdom is seek meaning and seek what makes you happy. But knowing all you know about ag and the food systems, is there any any kind of parting words? You know, Wes Jackson had some parting words for me when I went out to the Land Institute, and I they've they're words that I have never been able to let go, and I think they're applicable here. Um, Wes Jackson told us and the the group of people that I was with that this was the most important generation on earth, Uh, more important than the generation that walked out of Africa. And this idea that we are at a tipping point in our food system. And I truly believe that we have the power, the agency to change it. Um, And I think that the West is a prime example of of what could be and ways that we can restore agriculture um, and regenerate soil. Um, And so I think just thinking about that, and I think you said something earlier that I don't think is very cliche, which is put your money where your mouth is Mm. um, and and really invest in your local food system. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Well, you were very inspiring. Kate told me that. When Kate has said – after the live podcast, we were on the same plane going back, and she stopped in Denver to go see this Kate, and she sent me a text afterwards, and she's like, she's the most inspiring lady, and she definitely should come on your podcast, but we need to figure out how to get her on Joe Rogan's podcast. <laughs> I think so, Kate is too kind. So thank you for everything you're doing. Yeah, it's super thank you inspiring. for having me. It's been a real honor. I just – I love this podcast. Thank and so you. That means a lot here, coming from you. Coming down here, I was I was really nervous. <laughs> Man, don't be nervous. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Ed. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, If you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.